0: Let's turn to our Bibles, Revelation chapter 11. There's a printout in the bulletin and uh, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you if you want to use the real thing. You'll see that uh, we've got 14 verses printed in the bulletin. They asked me for the reading early in the week and uh, you can see I'm very optimistic because I'm only going to read two verses. So, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I'll read them slowly so it takes longer. Uh, Let's hear the word of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is the word of the Lord. So, in the book of Acts, I just read Revelation, but in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, it reports the story of the day of Pentecost. On that day, When the Spirit fell and marked his coming by divine actions, divine signs and wonders, the incipient church was empowered and equipped to be a holy temple. You'll remember on the day of Pentecost that there were tongues of fire that descended and lit upon the heads of all those who were gathered in that upper room. Those Columns of fire were reminiscent of the the pillar of fire and smoke that descended on the temple when it was consecrated by Solomon that fell on the tabernacle and hovered over the holy place when Moses erected the tabernacle in his day. The coming of the Spirit, overshadowing the people of God on the day of Pentecost, constituted the church to be a holy temple to God. The place of the presence of the Spirit and the Christian community uh, became the the very center of God's purposes in the world. The second thing we see about the church there in Acts 2 is that it very quickly became a witnessing community. The many visitors who were visiting Jerusalem at that point heard the believers speaking in their own language. In fact, the, the original suggests not only their own language, but their local dialect of their language about the mighty works of God. The Apostle Peter explained what was happening when he took center stage and gave a biblical framework for our thinking from the prophet Joel. Joel wrote this. In the last days it shall be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The Christian church was to be a prophetic community the recipient of the word of God, all of God's people, prophets speaking the word of God to the world, speaking to the world the truth, and the church as a community, corporate entity, a prophetic community. Now we must bear this principle in mind then as we approach Revelation 11. And the context of Revelation is the handing over to John of a book that we read about at the end of chapter 10. A few chapters earlier, we saw Christ, risen from the dead, the Lamb of God, receiving the book of destiny. It was a closed book, sealed with seven seals. But this book that's handed to the church is the book that contains the gospel. It's an open book. The gospel is not a mystery sealed It is an open book now because Christ has come, died, risen, and ascended into heaven. And the book is handed to John, representative of the church, the apostles. And John is an apostle, is a representative of all the apostles. And the apostles are the foundation on which the church is built. We come to believe in Jesus by their message So John is representative of the entire church, and he's your representative and mine. The little book, The Gospel for the World, is given to John by the authority of Christ. As Christ deputizes the church to bring the gospel to the world. This is a picture then of the commission that John receives at the end of chapter 10, when he's told to prophesy again. Now, as you know, the prophets didn't only speak. Sometimes prophets in the Old Testament engaged in some kind of prophetic action, a symbolic action. And so when we come to chapter 11, remember are no chapter divisions. It just runs, this whole thing runs in together. The chapter divisions are helpful and unhelpful at the same time. John has been commanded to prophesy and so he engages in this symbolic, prophetic action. He is is fulfilling the commission given to him by Christ through the angel. And the pattern of his action is the same as Ezekiel. We've been noticing that that John is using the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament as a kind of... uh, template for his own writing here. So many things in his visions overlap with what we find in the book of Ezekiel. Similarly so, when Ezekiel himself was commissioned by God to be a prophet, the first thing he did was a a symbolic prophetic action. So John is doing a similar thing, is called to do a similar thing. And John acts here as a microcosm of the church he's received from the from Christ by the angel by the angel this open book of the gospel we've seen at the end of chapter 10 that this book this gospel message is both negative and positive he eats it and to his taste it is sweeter than honey and yet when he swallows it it is bitter a bitter message the gospel is both of those things blessedness and bitterness. The gospel brings salvation, but it is also a harbinger of justice and judgment to come. The gospel therefore provokes reaction. As John has spoken of the gospel as a mystery of God, he further tells us that that mystery will be completed and ended at the last judgment. Part of God's preparation for the last judgment is to send his church into the world with the gospel to proclaim the gospel to people on which, by which you and I are saved, but on which the world will be judged. That's the bitterness to the business of preaching the gospel. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes that process Uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph and through us, speaking of him in the church, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's the idea of somebody walking through the room and you can smell the Chanel number 5 as they pass you by. That's the, that's the, we're sent out into the world and something of the fragrance of Jesus is to be experienced by the world. He goes on to say this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For one, a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, a fragrance of life to death. To life. The gospel has that effect. For those who reject it, condemnation. For those who receive it, salvation. Now, I don't think we reflect on that negative side very often. You'd rather not re- reflect on it very often. And yet, we are reminded in this book that much that goes on in the world today. In answer is an answer to the saints' explicit prayer that we read in chapter six and then again in chapter eight, the saints of God praying to God when we pray to God for justice in the world. It's a very serious prayer. We don't really want God to give justice quite yet. For justice will be meted out to the world on the day of judgment when everybody, small and great, who has ever lived will stand before God. That's why so far in this book we've seen the unfolding of history as the, the book with the seals has been unsealed. And we've seen that all the things that happen in the world, all of the, all of the experiences we have in the world... Uh, the, the, on a mega scale as well as on an individual scale are in the hands of the Lamb of God. Then we saw the trumpet blasts, the, the judgments that come as trumpet blasts, calling men and women, alerting men and women, boys and girls to their mortality and to the, the reality of eternity and the nearness of eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. The, the word of the gospel comes as a trumpet to the world, calling men and women to repentance. We saw that. And those who repent find life. Those who reject, the sound of the trumpet is a death knell to the world. All that then to introduce us to these two verses that have to do with the church. And the first thing we see about the church in these two verses is that the church Is sanctified. I think you can see that from the use of several words in the text the word the temple of God, the altar, those who worship there. The word temple there is quite a specific word. It's not the temple building as such, as we would describe this building we're in now, we'd describe this as a church building. From the outside it looks a certain way, and so on. From inside it. It looks another way for the time being, but that's going to end. But the word that's used here is the word for the inner sanctuary of the temple. That is the holy of holies, the sanctum sanctorum, right at the very heart of the temple. That's the word. The church is the temple. The sanctum sanctorum, the place where the altar is and where the priests worship Offer the worship to God there in the inner sanctuary. Now this is a prophecy, of course. John's writing is given to us in symbols, as most of the prophets did. And so what we must ask by the reading of the word temple is, what does it represent? If it's a symbol, what does it represent? Well, back in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48... The prophet describes the latter days, that is the end of history, and he describes a temple, the latter day temple. It's an idealized temple. You you could actually never build what Ezekiel describes as a physical building. It's not meant to be a physical building. Uh, It's not the temple of Solomon that he describes. It's not the, the temple of Herod in Jesus' day that's being described by John here. Both Ezekiel and John are talking about the final temple. When Jesus is there with people in the temple forecourt and uh, he, he starts to speak to them, he, he points to himself and he says, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He's talking about, so the note goes on, he's talking about the temple of his body. See, what is the main feature of the temple in the Old Testament? It's the place where God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God dwells. What's happening in, in the person, the man, Jesus Christ, in his humanity? That is where the glory of God dwells. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We saw his glory. And he spoke to us. In other words Jesus in himself. Is the holy of holies par excellence. And in Jesus the glory of God resides. God with us. Now the church. Because of its union with Christ. Because Christ does nothing without his body. He's the head. He does nothing without his body and he goes nowhere without his bride the church is the bride of christ the church is the body of christ the church shares in the nature of christ in this respect that now by the holy spirit god dwells no longer in christ god dwelt in his human nature today god by the spirit dwells where Pentecost answers us in the church. And not only in the church, but in every believer. Every believer, the Spirit of glory and of God dwells in you. So we're an extension of the temple. We belong, when we're together as God's people, this is a holy temple in the Lord. That's the teaching. Everywhere in the Bible, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that temple you are. When Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he says to them, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see that? Don't about the church. The church is a holy place. The people of God are holy people, saints. When we worship it, we engage in holy worship. God has set us apart. That's what the word holy means, set apart. Put a ring around them, said, this is my space where these people are gathering together today. These are my people, wherever they are. They are my holy people. They are mine. Satan, you don't touch them. They belong to me. Peter puts it like this. You are like living stones. Being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Through Jesus Christ. Now look again at verse 1 there. The temple of God, the altar where worship is given to God, and those who worship there, a priesthood. Men and women, every believer is a priest unto God. If every believer is a prophet, as the day of Pentecost teaches us, every believer is a priest. Offering spiritual sacrifices to God when we gather together, offering spiritual sacrifices to God as we worship. Back in the beginning of Genesis, we saw that Jesus, the great High priest, in the midst of the lampstands, which were in the holy place. and we're told that He is standing there among the churches. The churches are present in the presence of Jesus. Now this idea then that the temple, the church is the temple of God, kind of blasts away, really, some of the uh, more popular literature about the second coming of Jesus. I'm thinking of Hal Lindsay. Some ancient people here might remember the late great planet Earth and, and other nonsense. The idea that there will be a rebuilt Physical temple in Jerusalem finds no support, no support in the Bible. Period. No support. Were there to be a physical building built by the Jews in Jerusalem, what would they do in it? There would be a sacrificial system. But Jesus brought an end to the sacrificial system, He is the final sacrifice. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those believers who are sanctified. Well, what about the reference to the altar? The altar is the place on which Sacrifices are made. Uh, back in chapter 6, we saw the altar. We saw it stained with blood, but it wasn't the blood of a sacrifice. It was the blood of the saints. It was the, uh, the hatred they'd had to suffer. It was the indignities they'd had to suffer. It was the pressure that they'd felt through their lifetime. All the things that it costs us to follow Jesus in the world today ascend to heaven like an offering of a sacrifice. That has been made to God. Our prayers. Ascend like incense we're told. From the altar. Up to God. So that they ascend into his presence. And he hears our prayers. Our praises ascend. Like an offering to God. Into his presence. We're all acting as priests. When we pray together. As a church. When we praise together. As a church. When we together pronounce and declare the faith of the church as we do in our creed we are acting as prophets together proclaiming the word of God proclaiming the truth of God the church is sanctified set apart by God for its for his exclusive use but there's another thing here that goes with the temple and that's the expression at the end of verse 2 about the holy city. You, You find the Bible doing this. It throws a lot of metaphors to help you understand different aspects of what it means to be God's holy people in the world as opposed to the world itself. Not only are we the temple, not only are we the temple, we're the innermost part of the temple. We belong there. We belong in the presence of Almighty God right where he is Because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us as individuals and indwells us as a body. But we are also something else. We are a holy city. We belong to heavenly Jerusalem. In this verse, the reference to the holy city is a reference to the earthly part, if you like, of the holy city in heaven heaven comes on earth in the church. You belong to heaven. You're a citizen of heaven as a believer. That's where you belong. That's your your home country. But here you are. You live on earth. And while you're living on earth we see you. We see your body sitting in the pew. Some of you are still awake, which is good. Uh, But you're present at least. and, And we can see your presence. The church belongs in heaven. And in our worship, that's where our Attention focuses. You don't come to church to start talking about what's going on in the world and discussing the politics of the world. Thank heavens. You come to church to stop thinking about all the other things in your life that are on your mind in order that you might think about the things of God, your destiny. But nonetheless, we belong to a, another city. Another country where our true home is and in which our first loyalties lie. That's an important thing for us to remember. When we gather together for worship, here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. This is what we are doing this morning. We we did when we started it with a call to worship. You have come. Today, you have come To Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festive gathering. You've come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To the judge who is the God of all, to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The church is sanctified by God set apart his exclusive city temple altar priesthood then secondly the church is secured let's read the text again i was given a measuring rod like a staff and i was told rise and measure the temple of god what's the business of this measuring Now, again, remember, what is being measured here is not a material, physical sanctuary, but the spiritual building of the church, the mystical building of the church, in which the members, jointly and severally, are both living stones that actually form the construction of the temple and royal priests who operate and worship within the temple. That's what we, we are. We, we, we hold both of those positions, jointly and severally together. Later in chapter 21, the city of God will be measured. In Ezekiel, the angel measures various aspects of the temple complex, and given that this is John's background uh, of, for using the metaphor, there in Ezekiel is very helpful because the whole purpose of the measuring there is to secure the ultimate protection and security of, God, of God's temple. So by measuring, what is, what is the author being told to do? He, he's to establish the boundaries of the church. He's to establish the boundaries of the people of God. The boundaries that rule out any secular pagan intrusion into the holiest place of all. Uh, the boundaries protect the church against contamination by ungodly and deceptive people. The measuring of the sanctuary provides for its preservation from general overthrow. The structure of the book of Revelation is helpful at this point. Revelation reading Revelation is like ascending a spiral staircase. As you go up, you keep coming back to the same point, but you come back to that point at a higher level. That's what we're doing in the book of Revelation. We're going over the same period of time, the period of time that's being covered at every occasion here is the period of time between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. The whole period. But we see it from different perspectives. We've already seen in the... the, uh, in the initial book that had the seven seals, that the things that happen in the world are happening by God's permission or by God's decree. Everything that goes on in the world. Then we got a bit higher and we noticed that the the seven trumpets were sounded. The trumpets give you another perspective on what's going on in the world. Those things that are going on in the world are also warning calls to the world. Repent, get ready. Later on we'll see that intensify. Well, in terms of the framework, between seals six and seven, we find people who are sealed with the Holy Spirit serving God in the inner sanctuary of the temple. People are sealed by the Holy Spirit in the inner sanctuary. And they're a very definite number. There's one thousand one hundred forty-four thousand of them. That's a Symbolic number like all the numbers in the book of Revelation. What can you say about that number? Well, it's a play on the number 12, 12 apostles, 12 patriarchs, Israel, the church, the church being new Israel, continuing Israel. But when John looks to see the 144,000, that's a definite number in the mind of God who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, what does he see? He says, I saw... A multitude which no one can number from every nation, from all the tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne before the Lamb, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. So the same group of people are now being talked about here. Between seals six and seven, that massive number, sealed by the Spirit. Between trumpets six and seven, God's people are safe in the inner sanctuary that's measured to show us that they are known to God and that they are safe in his care. The whole overture of the idea here is of divine preservation and divine presence, both promised and guaranteed to be with this temple community forever. The church of God throughout this period, as Professor Beale put it, This means that the faith of God's people will be upheld by his presence since without the living presence there can be no living faith. You know this. You know that if you're a believer today God chose you from before the foundation of the world. And he gave you to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And he has made and decreed And secured the salvation of all those people who will be members of his church. He's done that by his blood. The church is secured. And then, lastly, the church is sustained. It's sustained. Sanctified, secured, and sustained. Do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is all symbolic of course. John is using the model of Ezekiel's temple. In Ezekiel's temple there was simply the inner sanctuary which is cube shaped and then an outer court. It, it, Solomon's temple and Herod's temple had lots of other rooms and attachments but, but, but Ezekiel's is kind of basic. There's the sanctuary where God meets his people and the priests worship there's the court in the outside that's the picture that, that he's painted here remember Ezekiel's temple is an idealized temple not a literal one here the image is of the soul that's the inner you who you are that doesn't die and the body the body that will die soul and the body Uh, the inner and the outer court the church worshipping and taking part in the heavenly things that are going on and the church in its exterior life you have an interior life you read the Bible you pray You worship with God's people. But you have an exterior life in the body that you live in, for example. The church has an exterior life in the institutions, in the things that we do, in the world, in our presence that's seen by the world. That's what's in view here. The court outside the temple. Now, the court outside the temple belongs to the temple. That's made very clear in Ezekiel. It belongs to the temple. Your body belongs to your soul. Your soul belongs to the temple of God. God's not going to forget your body. He's going to raise it up on the last day. The church, its exterior life may be destroyed by the world, but, but it belongs to God and God will retrieve it one day. That's, that's the picture that's being painted here. So the temple, the altar, and those who worship there in the holy city refer to the church as God's people and constitute the heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation, the holy city refers either to the future city of God or the earthly manifestation of it in the churches. So John begins in chapters 2 and 3 with Jesus talking to the churches. The earthly manifestation is at risk. It's at risk. It's at risk from the world system. The Apostle John says the world system lies in the arms of the evil one. The world is at once a victim and an instrument of Satan and demons. It's in this context that believers must live out our lives because though our life is hid with Christ in God, nonetheless, we're still here. We're still exposed. We're still unprotected from assault and persecution. But that's to be distinguished from the inner you that is safe from harm. Both our inner life and our outer life belong to God. So we belong to Zion. We worship in the inner sanctuary. The outer court as is notice the language that's used, given over to the nations. These very nations, described by the prophet David in Psalm two, as those who conspire, those whose rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his Christ, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder. And cast their cords from us. The church, in its outward life, is given over to the nations. That is, it's in the purpose of God by his permission, if by nothing else. And the world will try to profane the church. Can you imagine what it might be that the world regards as bonds and cords? Christian ethics, Christian morality, Christian doctrine that has affected the whole of the Christendom, the whole of Western society and culture that it can't get away from. But today, people are determined to get away from it. They are saying just exactly what these nations said. They're taking counsel together against the Lord and his Christ, saying let's burst their bonds asunder. They want to eradicate every aspect of Christian morality. Will we be able to hold the wall? I don't think we will. We were not unsuccessful in holding the wall against abortion. Will we be able to hold the wall against euthanasia, which is being actively discussed as we speak in countries all over the world and in our own country? Or, or, or against taking away or the, the limitation on the age in which someone can have sex with minors. You take that away. What do we have? Sexual abuse of children that is legal? People are talking about that. Do you really think, do you really think in 20 years' time we'll be able to hold the wall against that? Society is in revolt against everything that was even vaguely Christian in our Constitution and in our Declaration of Independence. That's this country. The same in other countries. They belong to the outer court of the church. They can be be desecrated by the world, profaned by the world. I want you to think just for a second. Is the world, is is the church at risk Church the at risk not only because of believers, but because in the courts of the church, in, in the, amongst the, the number who gather in worship on Sundays, shrinking though that number may be, there are those who don't really know Jesus. I think if you're not a historian, then you can become uh, a pretend historian and read some. One of the most frightening lessons of history is the almost complete capitulation of the German church to National Socialism under Hitler. The Protestant church in Germany, in almost its entirety, sold out to Hitler and adopted Hitler's principles entirely if you had been to a, any Protestant church in Germany during, leading up in the 1930s before the war, the war started everybody in the church would be wearing brown shirts to show their loyalty to Hitler Hitler's flag would be here and he would be hailed save us Heil save us Heil That should be a warning to the church in every generation. Because as the the text says, the courts of the church is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city. And one way or another they've done that in in different ways, at different points of time, right through these years and will until Jesus comes again. The church's outer life will be constantly exposed to danger but here's the rub the world's treatment of the church is delimited Daniel is being quoted here at the end of this second verse the book of Daniel how long will this vision be the giving over of the sanctuary and of the host to be trampled underfoot Daniel is told three and a half years John replies, they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. A little later on we're told that the gospel will be preached for 1,260 days. John is using his own calendar here, 12 months with 30 days in each month. He's using this biblical language that comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel, to describe the entire church age. But he uses this This code, the three and a half years, our 42 months, our 1,260 days. He uses the code in order to remind us of what? Israel's journey through the desert. They had 42 stops that are recorded in Numbers chapter 33. Elijah's ministry, three and a half years. The ministry of Jesus. By the way, the ministry of Jesus is going to be important because towards the end of the three and a half years, that is the period of the church's existence here, the church is going to be left for dead on the streets. As we go through Revelation, we'll find 42 months of being tempted and trampled underfoot, 1,260 days of witnessing, three and a half years in which evil is allowed free reign, but then it's finished. And just as Jesus' ministry of three and a half years ended with his resurrection, so the churches mission of three and a half years imitating Jesus will end with our resurrection from the dead. The church sustained. What do you do with this? Well, I think it gives us a perspective on the world that's going, that we're in the midst of just now. It gives us perspective on the promises of God, and encourages us to look and to wait and to cry, Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us by your word, that you would strengthen us by it, and that you would make it possible for us to serve you faithfully in the midst of whatever comes our way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.